0: Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on SpeechTherapyPD.com, and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Renee Garrett and I'm your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional NeuroRehab for SLPs. Each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Here are the financial and non financial disclosures. I will be presenting this aphasia case studies program today as well. So, I am a paid employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I am an adjunct faculty instructor for James Madison University and Old Dominion University. As host of this podcast, I receive financial compensation from speechtherapypd.com. For the non financial disclosures, I am the secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. And I'm a member of ASHES-SIG-2 Neurogenic Communication Disorders. So we will be discussing aphasia case studies today. I've been treating aphasia my entire career. My dad actually had aphasia as a result of a stroke long before I became an SLP. So it's kind of the reason that I became an SLP. So the learner objectives today are to compare and contrast at least three characteristics of aphasia to describe two barriers for persons with aphasia when seeking therapy services and to describe two strategies for clinicians that they can implement immediately for stroke care. So in order to get started, I'd really like to define aphasia because I think there's a lot of miscommunication and even some things in literature that I've read recently that describe a cognitive aspect of aphasia. And while we may connect the two, I like the National Institute of Health's definition. They define aphasia as a disorder that results from damage to portions of the brain that are responsible for language. And they go on to further say that aphasia usually occurs suddenly, often following a stroke or head injury, but it may also develop slowly as the result of something like a brain tumor or a progressive neurological disease. The disorder impairs the expression and understanding of language, as well as reading and writing. And aphasia may co-occur with speech disorders such as dysarthria or apraxia of speech, which also can result from damage to the brain. Aphasia.org defines it as an impairment of language affecting the production or comprehension of speech and the ability to read or write. And one of the ways that I've explained that not only to students but also to patients is that reading and writing are forms of expressive and receptive language, and so they often mirror the person's ability to speak or the person's ability to comprehend. So if we see impairments in comprehension, as far as listening comprehension, we may also see some impairments in reading comprehension. And conversely, we may see expressive language impairments that also manifest in written language impairments. So what is aphasia not is a, is a good, good segue, I think, here. It's not a lack of intellect and it's not mental instability. It is the ability to access ideas and thoughts through language, not the ideas and thoughts themselves. That's what's disrupted. So the ideas and thoughts are there. It's just they're disrupted in the acquisition of language or in the production of language. You know, we often will say to our patients, do you feel like you have the word and it disappears before it comes out? Or does the word just not come to you at all? Can you use a similar word? And I think that's an important distinction to make because again, there's a lot of times where when I worked resource pool and went in behind a different less seasoned clinician that maybe had not worked with aphasia as much or had a family member with aphasia, they would write cognitive goals for things like temporal orientation. I say this all the time. If if you woke me up and I had been in the hospital and not had a stroke, if you asked me the date, I probably am gonna have to look at my phone or the whiteboard in my room. It's just not something that I have in my brain when I wake up first thing in the morning. So you can imagine if you've got this goal set for temporal orientation for a patient with a language problem and you wake them up from a dead sleep and you ask them, what's today's date? Uh that's what I would say. Um, uh, (laughs) you know, and I don't have aphasia. So thinking about goal writing and goal setting, we'll kind of talk about that a little later when we get to the actual case studies part but making sure those goals are relevant to what your patient's needs are. So just to kind of review types of aphasia, some terms that I see commonly used in medical settings are expressive or receptive. A lot of people don't really want to delve into what that means as far as the details, especially the physicians and the nurses. They they typically will just write it that way in their notes and then not expand on it. Some people will even uh, go so far as to say fluent or non-fluent. And those aren't incorrect, but when I was um, in graduate school, my thesis supervisor and mentor was Dr. Stacey Raymer, who has been in the field of adult aphasia research for many years now. And um, she taught us those terms, but we were also taught to classify using standardized testing for global aphasia, Broca's aphasia, Wernicke's aphasia, and it was important to, and and so on, um, because there's more, but it was important to distinguish what type of aphasia someone had. Say, for example, Wernicke's, because Wernicke's, you know, people will talk, but their talk is often um, lacking context. So they have the ability to produce fluent speech, but it may not make any sense. Or it may make some sense and then trail off versus Broca's, where the problem tends to be initiating speech and being able to get that language started to begin with. So, just some little food for a thought there. So the way that I'm going to approach this is using the WHO International or the World Health Organization International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health. I do that because that's the way I learned it. Um, that's the way Dr. Reamer taught us to think about this from a life participation approach um, and how this impacts the patient from body functions and structures activities, participation, and environmental factors. And so when we think about body function and structures, of course, that's how it impairs or doesn't impair someone's ability to complete motor tasks um, or have use of their legs, um, their arms, maybe even bowel function, looking at that bladder function, because that's impactful for someone's day. The ability to complete activities that they enjoyed or even activities such as going to church, um, being able to work outside the home, that kind of thing, and then participation in those activities. But participation particularly, um, and again, we'll kind of delve into this as we get into the case studies, and things that um, are important to them in their life. And then those environmental factors, if there's barriers or facilitators, because they could be either one. For example, if you have a patient with really great family support, or really get great caregiver support, their environmental factors may be less of a barrier for their day and their access to care than someone who is reliant on um, medical transport and maybe doesn't have the best caregiving going on. So the ICF is important because it is the biopsychosocial model of disability. And so it connects all of those pieces. And per the CDC overview um, that I've looked at many times of this model, it's based on an integration of the social and medical models of disability. And again, why is that important? Well, because if we're looking at what the patient wants and what's important to their family or caregiver and to them, it helps us understand and frame our goals, our treatment, um, even our interaction as far as our role in counseling and providing education. It impacts all of those things. And so I think in order to be more well-rounded in the treatment room, it's helpful to look at it from a holistic standpoint, which I think is really what the ICF sought out to do, um, because it does give us more of a, a, a holistic framework to work off of. Thinking about, you know, if someone is um, has some right hemiparesis going on, it may be a little challenging for them to complete their physical therapy on the same day that they're completing speech therapy meaning if they do physical therapy first and they really exert a lot of energy and pressure and then they come to speech therapy, how does that impact their ability to complete language tasks when we know that fatigue can be a barrier? So it's just a matter of really starting to think about how all of those things interplay for those those patients. So the very first case study, I'll give you the background. Um, This was a 40-year-old male. He had stage four lung cancer as a 38 year old man. Um, It was completely out of the blue. I don't think there was any family history. Wasn't a smoker, Um, good health, like, liked to work out. He was a runner. Like I said, this came out of the blue. Um, He wound up having some pretty intense, as you can imagine, stage four lung cancer is pretty significant. Um, He did chemo, radiation, and immunotherapy. And after he had finished his treatment, <clears throat> wound up having a stroke as a result of the late effects of his radiation because obviously the radiation was to his chest. Um it's kind of hard to bypass the heart when you're, you know, doing radiation to the chest. And so they had found a blockage and he'd had two stents already placed. And uh again, you know, this was someone who was working, he liked to work out, was a runner, played chess, uh, had a pretty wide social network. Pretty good sized family. Um, had a daughter who was early teen at that point when all this first started. So when they had uh when he underwent an MRI, it did show a very large left MCA infarct with involvement involvement of the supermarginal gyrus. The initial diagnosis was global aphasia. Now I wasn't on board at that point. This was when he was in the hospital. Um, I actually inherited him, I say inherited because Um, he was under the care of another speech pathologist. And when I started the adult program where I was working, he was one of my first patients. And so the handoff I sort of got was that he was very angry. Um, that was a barrier. He was distrustful of his wife. That was a barrier. And the first time that he was seen by the SLP that was treating him, um, she gave him the, uh, CLQT and he picked it up off the table, balled it up, threw it in the trash and walked out. So of course I was like, "Oh, this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a tough one." <clears throat> so when he came in, he was he was seemed a little nervous, a little hesitant, but the very first thing I said was of course I introduced myself and then I said, "What would you like to see come out of this?" And he got he got pretty emotional. Um I don't think anyone had asked him that. And it's always interesting because I think most of us all mean well, but if we're not asking our patients what do they want and the caregivers, what do they want, then I think we're really missing a huge piece. I always tell my students um, and even colleagues if I'm mentoring someone that, you know, the patient's not going to have buy-in the therapy if it's not for them. I can go in and dictate all day long what I think you should be doing, how you should be doing it. But if it doesn't fit your goals and what you want as the patient, then you may not be interested. Those are the folks who maybe don't come back or the ones who aren't doing their home exercise program because they don't understand the benefits or they don't see how practicing talking is going to do them any good in in the long term of if they want to go back to work, for example. So from a body structures and function standpoint, Initially, he had some impaired motor function, and this was all stuff I got from the medical record because, again, this was not he was not um, my patient initially at the beginning when he first had the stroke. Matter of fact, he had his stroke, I think it was in the summer, like July, and I wound up seeing him for the first time in October. So it had been a couple of months. So initially, he had impaired motor function of both the right upper and lower extremities, Um, That quickly resolved from what I could gather. When he came into the um, outpatient clinic, he was walking. I don't even think physical therapy was even seeing him. OT probably saw him a couple of visits. The only thing that he'd had an issue with um, was a little bit of fine motor stuff in his uh, right hand. And he was right hand dominant. But it was so mild that he was able to do everything he needed to do as far as being able to write um, from a fine motor standpoint, being able to feed himself, button things, dress himself. He was independent and all that, um, self-feeding, grooming, all those things. He could do all that. Matter of fact, he always came in, um, dressed, hat, um, sometimes, you know, he loved his sneakers. So he always had some, some cool sneakers on, but his biggest challenge was expressive language. And then he noticed some challenges with reading comprehension, The reading comprehension was definitely more of a higher level or mid-level reading comprehension. And I think it had more to do with language processing than the actual comprehension. And I'll kind of delve into that a little bit. Um, So what would happen is if he was reading something like a newspaper or a magazine in a columnar format, so columns, it was difficult for him to transition from one column to the next and retain what he had read. And I found that interesting because no one had said he had any type of visual field cut. He wasn't having any double vision, anything like that. He wasn't describing or experiencing. He could read the words out loud. So say we did oral reading, he could do that up to a point when, and then he would get kind of halfway through and have to stop because he'd get frustrated. It wasn't coming as quickly. So Um, that to me was more of an expressive language situation when he was reading aloud versus remembering what he read. Um, And we did some stuff on the iPad and he was, he did fine. He could do pretty like two, three, four paragraphs as long as it wasn't in a column. And I found that really interesting and we never really could, get to the end of it, because if we did it without the use of columns, he did fine. He could answer the comprehension questions and, and get either 90 percent or 100 percent. So, again, it was super interesting. Um. So, from an activity standpoint for him, by the time I saw him, so September, October, so th- about three and a half months after the initial stroke, he had already gone back to working out. He was running a little bit. Um, he wasn't able to go back to work. He did work in a setting where he was in a control room, and he had to be able to give he had to be able to give instructions to other coworkers in other parts of the place that he was working um via a, like a walkie talkie style radio, like a two way radio kind of thing and um he wasn't able to do that because he couldn't come up with the words quickly enough at the beginning and again, I'll kind of hopefully remember to get back into that when we get to the treatment section, but one of the bigger things was him with with him was social isolation. He described it as people that, you know, he'd always been friends with just really not wanting to be around him. Um, They didn't understand from a participation standpoint, he described himself as losing all my friends that um, he said, no one understands. They think I'm stupid. And sometimes he would even get, emotional about his wife and say it would just be easier if she would leave. And I think he I think for him he was definitely having some aspects of depression that um maybe even some you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but he, he really seemed like sometimes it was some anxious type, angry outburst, depress depressive um behaviors that he had. Sometimes he would I'd say, Hey, how was your weekend? And he'd say, well, I stayed in bed all weekend. I didn't say, why? Well, I didn't have nothing to do. Um, you know, he, he would say that they had gone out to dinner with friends and it didn't go well. And I'd say, you know, well, what happened? He had a, a couple of times where he went to order food and it wouldn't come out. And so his wife would order for him and he hated that. So we we spent some time talking about how you know, rehearsing before you go, but also if you do have to, I always call it phone a friend. Phone a friend is fine. If you have to phone a friend and she's able to help you, the point is, was the message that you wanted to convey able to be conveyed? And if you can answer yes to that, sometimes you have to be thankful for the help, which is, you know, again, that's easy for me to say. I'm on the opposite side of it, but I thought about it from my own family experience of watching my dad when he struggled and thinking about um, the times that we went to the grocery store and he would get so angry if someone would approach him on the right, because my dad had um, right hemianopsia. And and so he didn't see the person coming and all of a sudden there's a person there and he would get so angry, like they did it on purpose. And so um, we spent some time talking about the brain's response to the chemical changes that happen as a result of the stroke and using that counseling piece and that education piece to sort of help him understand that having help was a blessing, not a curse. And that's not an easy transition for a 40 year old male who was the breadwinner, who was more of the traditional husband mowing the lawn and doing household tasks Um you know, it just, it wasn't who he was is how he would describe it. That's not who I am. I'm the man. He would say that a lot. I'm the man. I'm the man. I need to be doing this. And um, so it was, it was very frustrating for him. So from an environmental standpoint, he did continue to live with his wife at home. So he wasn't in a facility. Um, He never had to go to like skilled nursing or anything like that. Um, He couldn't drive for six months though, because he had had seizure activity post-stroke And so in in the um, Commonwealth of Virginia, if you have stroke or seizure activity, um, no matter what is what it's a result of, then you can't drive per the neurologist for six months. And so um, that was a challenge because, again, him being socially isolated, he was even more socially isolated because he had to be reliant on either his wife or another family member like his mom. or I think he had an uncle that would come and and do stuff with him, but you know, again, it was socially isolating from, for him and his standpoint of what he wanted to be able to do. So, what did therapy look like with him? Well, we did a lot of delving into things that he enjoyed, and then also things that he needed in order to go back to work. So, at the beginning, his his verbal output was pretty limited. He um, on the quick aphasia battery when I gave it to him, he fell into my, like the moderate range for um, length of utterance and words per minute that improved drastically over the four months that I treated him. But what we did at the beginning was he, like I said, he was a chess player. He used to go play um, like at the rec center. He'd play, he played in a couple of tournaments. He was pretty good from what I understand. Um, I don't know how to play chess. So I said, how about you teach me how to play chess? So we probably spent three, maybe four therapy sessions and he came twice a week. So this was only like two weeks worth of him telling me what the rules were and then trying to show me, um, some of his best moves, if you will. So we did that over, um, probably three or four sessions and then it culminated in an actual chess match. Of course, he beat me in like, I don't know, four moves or something crazy because chess is not something that you learn overnight, in my opinion, at least not for me. It took a while uh, for me to kind of get up to speed, and I was still wasn't up to speed like he was because he'd been playing for a number of years. Um, but that was something that was important to him. He wanted to be able to, if he was able to go back to work, to to play chess on his lunch break or his regular break and um He had a couple buddies he liked to play chess with. So that was something that was really important to him. And um, again, if we're looking at that holistic approach and what we want to see happen with our patients as far as outcomes go, what do they want to see as far as outcomes go? His ultimate goal is to go back to work. So probably along in month three, I think it was maybe four when we were kind of wrapping up our first episode of care. The um, neuropsychologist, when he went for his follow-up, suggested music therapy, and he was not happy about that. But one thing that I found out about this particular music therapist was that she often worked in conjunction with the neurology team with patients with aphasia to approach um, fluency. And so it wound up while he was taking a break from his first episode of care with me, He went to music therapy, and I think it made a difference in his fluency because when he came back for his second episode of care, um, he was much more fluent. Now, was that time and space and maybe some carryover of what we had done previously? I'm not sure, but whatever it was, he was getting better, and he was still continuing to make gains and make progress. So in the second episode of care, um, what he really wanted to do was work on reading comprehension and that's when we started using the iPad. I did a little um, category inventory cross-categorization activity with him too. That was something that I did as my thesis project where the, the theory behind it was that if you could have your patient name the same 10 items in a category over consistent period of time that that translate into being able to name less common objects in a different category and so we did and I didn't do it exactly the the way the study was done because that that wasn't the goal but it was um seeing kind of that common vocabulary inventory plus seeing what that less common vocabulary looked like and was he able to get from a to b and, and increase his um his work, his use of less common words. And the answer was, yes, he could. And it was actually fairly consistent. He did a really nice job of practicing at home. And one thing we did too was work on things like synonyms. Um, we did an acrostic um, puzzle where he, you know, that's got like the pictures, like a the word below a line and, and, and just like two boxes and, um, I can't think of all the things that were on the activities page, but it, it was a it's a fairly advanced level um, language task, and he got to the point where he could figure out probably seventy percent of those, and that would that was pretty cool because it really helped him build that confidence that he needed. Um, he started being able to go out a little bit more. He wasn't staying in bed for days at a time. He was trying to do things like. Um, lawn work. They had a birthday party for his wife and it was important to him to be able to touch up some uh, paint on the porch out front that um, people would see when they came in. So he was able to do some things like that. And he was so excited to come back and say, hey, guess what I was able to do this weekend? And and it just made him feel really good. Um, so we wrapped up our second episode of care and his goal was to go back to work. And I'm not sure if he ever did because he didn't um follow up and he couldn't remember his password for his phone so when i called him to follow up his mailbox was full and he didn't answer so um i'm not sure if he went back to work i know that was his goal oh and one of the things we did that um again i just my outside the box thinking when it comes to therapy is usually all about what the patient needs and what they want to achieve and so i went over to Um, the pediatric clinic, because they had a set of walkie talkies. So we got the walkie talkies and I went um, across the OT gym into our break room and he stayed in my office and we closed the doors. So there was that barrier. Um, We were in two separate locations. And so we did a little mock scenario on the walkie talkies of what he had told me he would need to, the questions I would need to answer or ask for him to be able to respond the way that he would have to respond at work. If there was like an alarm going off in the control room, if there was a um, anything that he needed to relate to someone in another part of the building via that walkie talkie. So we had gone through that scenario probably three or four times of potential questions I could ask, but he didn't know what I was going to ask. And so what we did was like a little two minute drill and we did it um, three times over the course of, that session and then the next session. And I mean, he, he, for lack of better word, he killed it. It was great. He did so well. Um, We added in a little bit of background noise because that was a trigger for him too. He would get so frustrated at the beginning if his wife was on the phone and he could hear her nail like tapping while she was texting. Or if she had the, um, she would bring sale sheets like the grocery store flyer. He would get so mad if she was flipping through the grocery store flyer and he could hear the paper. Um, the OT gym was right behind um, or is right behind my office or adjoins to my office and he would get frustrated because it's a hand therapy clinic. So there's always a lot of noise, drills, dremels, um, hammering, pounding, you know, that kind of thing. And he would get very frustrated by that. So we use that barrier as a tool to help him get better at having that spontaneous language and being able to move through these tasks that he needed to be able to do with decreased frustration. No, he wasn't 100% not frustrated, but he got better at it. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the Certificate Tracker? The free CE Tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs. Whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider, simply upload your certificate to your registered account, and you're all set. So come join the fastest-growing CE provider, SpeechTherapyPD.com. He was a um, a really fun patient to work with, and um, definitely pushed me to get more information about ways that I could help him, especially with the reading the reading piece because that was a big deal for him. And it was, it was very incredibly frustrating. So let's move on to the second case study. Um, This is another one that was just such an unfortunate, um, this series of events that happened was just like one of the most painful things I've ever heard. Um, Just how this all played out. But this lady was 50 years old. She did have um, diabetes, obesity, um, hypertension, you know all the things that place you at higher risk for stroke. She she has them all. Heart disease, but the big thing for her was that her diabetes was not well managed, and she had had a diabetic um, foot ulcer that had been healing, not healing, healing, not healing for like two years at that point. And she went in for a transmetatarsal amputation due to this unhealing foot ulcer, and wound up having a stroke post-surgery. The MRI showed a left MCA and left ACA involvement with damage to the left parasylvian region, as well as the left anterior and superior frontal lobe. So you can imagine, that's a pretty massive stroke, um, and the initial diagnosis, again, was global aphasia. And this is the, not that that part isn't unfortunate enough, but what happened next is the really awful part. Um, This was in March of 2020, so her family, um, you know, both her daughters had to continue to work when she was ready to be discharged from the hospital, and so the best choice for them and for her, they felt like, based on her, where she was physically was going to skilled nursing. So, she gets to skilled nursing. She's there for maybe 10 days, and everything happened with the pandemic, and the shutdown of therapy in the skilled nursing facility. So she couldn't go home because they weren't allowing patients who had been admitted to skilled nursing to leave because again, you know, we're at the beginning of the pandemic. No one knew what was going to happen, but she got no therapy the entire year, 14 months that she was in skilled nursing. Um, That was probably one of the most disheartening things I've ever seen. Because who knows at her age, even though she had all these medical comorbidities, who knows what would have been different had she had quality therapy at the beginning when we know that the neuroplasticity is the strongest. Um, And that's not to say she didn't make gains because she did. Um, But it was just that like broke my heart. So looking at body functions and structures for her, she had right hemiparasis, so um right upper extremity and lower extremity were both impaired. um She had almost no function of her right leg, very almost no of her um right upper extremity, her arm. but she was left hand dominant to begin with, so she did have that in her favor because she could um use that left hand to do some still do some functional tasks. She um, was and is wheelchair bound with mod to max assist for transfers, and she's incontinent of both bowel and bladder and often doesn't have good awareness of that. Um, And so she had a lot for PT to work on and a lot for OT to work on and a ton for me to work on. So, from an activity standpoint, she was not able to get dressed or complete grooming independently. She could assist because she did have that left dominant hand that an arm that she could use. She was able to cook some simple things like scrambled eggs or make a sandwich. She did um, endorse sometimes. She had a, a has a, a caregiver who comes eight hours a day, and sometimes depending on if it's the Regular caregiver or someone filling in on her caregiver's day off, her care was inconsistent. There were times when she came in at uh, lunchtime and she hadn't had breakfast, but they had given her her insulin. So she was kind of blood sugar crash mode and um, just a lot of issues with the inconsistent caregiving for her that were really impactful. And again, we'll talk about that more under environmental. She couldn't drive. um she couldn't go upstairs to her bedroom. So she lived with her, well lives with her father and um, her had for years, her bedroom is upstairs on the second level and she can't get up there. So since she had her stroke, she has not been in her own private bedroom in four years. Um, Again, reliant on inconsistent caregivers. So from a participation standpoint, she definitely expressed social isolation. Um, she even felt isolated from her family. At the beginning, when I first started seeing her, she um, had some, seemed to have good support from her daughters, but then there were some issues that that crept in there um, with her disability check and um, not always having what the family was saying that they were doing was not actually what was happening she was unable to work, she was unable to complete tasks like grocery shopping or shopping for clothes independently. She could get there with transport, but then, you know, how was she, if she didn't have her caregiver, it was, she's in a wheelchair. It's difficult for her to do it by herself with one um, arm and one leg that are able to help propel the wheelchair and navigate getting things and putting them in the basket and stuff like that. So it was in her to her and what she described with her limited verbal output was that that was impossible that's what she would say it was impossible um she couldn't do laundry and she couldn't complete financial management tasks independently and that's one of the pieces that came into play was that there was a family member who was uh, the recipient of her social security disability check and they were not handling her finances appropriately and making sure that she had um, money for things like groceries and um, clothes and, and things like that. So you can imagine that as a grown woman who had had a job prior to all this, had been independent, um, That that's such a huge devastation and a huge piece of your independence. Your financial independence is, is a big piece of that. And again, you know, a lot of us who treat patients with aphasia, we see this a lot, but it's still, to me, after, even after doing this for so long, um, it's still really, oh, just, it hurts my soul, because it's hard to think that people would take advantage of someone in that manner. So, environmental, um, you know, and the way that she described it and the way her caregiver described it, once she finally got a regular caregiver, mostly everything in her environment was a barrier to her doing the things that she wanted to do. She liked to be outside. Um, They did build a nice wheelchair ramp at their house. Um, I think that was in place prior to, because her dad has a progressive neurological disease and had some mobility issues. Um, But she wasn't, and this is the the term that she used and the term that her caregiver used. She wasn't allowed to go outside. So if her caregiver wasn't there, any family member who might be over wouldn't let her go outside and sit on the porch. Um, and again, it doesn't seem like much, but man, I love my back porch. <laughs> it's like my de-stress place in the evening. So if you're used to that and it's in your, your um, de-stress mode or your just enjoying nature mode. If that's who you are as a person and it's important to you, that's really, that's a barrier. That's a barrier to your um, your headspace. Um, the daughters did both help, but there was a lot of family drama. There was a lot of uncertainty for her as to what, if something happened to her aging father, um, what would happen to her? What was the plan? And And so we had some conversations with the daughters about that who were not forthcoming about what the long-term plan was. And um, it did become a barrier in therapy because she really wanted to know if something happens to my dad, what happens to me? She was very aware that they would most likely not be able to take care of her with the physical needs, even with an aide to help out or a caregiver that that helped out during the day that she was very aware that they were probably not going to be able to take on that role and they were also aware, but they wouldn't tell her what the ultimate um, the ultimate destination for her would be. Um, I think they probably had a plan based on my conversations with them. They just, for whatever reason, didn't want her to know. It's kind of a, a tricky situation. So the fun part, though, what did therapy look like for her? So for, when she first came in, she was talking. like she could do appropriate social greetings. She would say things like, um, your hair, your hair. And I would look at her like, what, what is it like sticking out or something? And she would say pretty, pretty, or um, complimenting someone on what they had on. Even in the waiting room, she would um, look at other patients and compliment them. You're top, you're top, pretty, pretty. And so it was interesting because that sort of spoke to me about what her personality was like prior to all this social, outgoing, um, liked other people, wasn't an introvert, you know, kind of liked being out and about. Um, We actually used, the, and I'm not a paid um, endorser or anything like that, but I really am a big fan of the Tactus Therapy apps, and we used them at the beginning um, quite a bit, She wound up being someone who came to therapy on her first episode of care for probably six months. And she needed every bit of it because, again, this was someone who had at the end of her skilled nursing stay, I think she probably had two weeks worth of therapy, which is not very much. And she had home health for like two weeks. And then the person, whoever it was, stopped showing up. And that's when she came to outpatient. So she was two and a half years post stroke when I started seeing her. And we know from research, we used to think that that whole one year marker was, that was it. But we know now that people make gains up to 10 years. Um, There's literature to support that. So I didn't have any qualms about taking her on as a patient, even if we could get her, you know, 50% better, 40% better too, that I would take it because it was important to her. So what things were important to her were being able to spontaneously answer questions. And we're talking basics. Like she could get her name, she could get her address inconsistently. So sometimes she could get her house number, her street name, but she couldn't do the zip code. Um, or she could get the zip code, but the house number would be wrong. Um, you know, she, she could tell you her daughter's names, she could tell you her caregiver's name when it was someone that was consistent, but being able to move beyond that. So I'll give you an example. Um, I saw her two weeks ago, not for therapy, just she was back for OT and I saw her in the waiting room and, and I was kind of joking with her because she has a great sense of humor. And I said, who's your favorite speech therapist? I said, tell your OT. And she just looked at me and she went, who? And I went me. And she goes, oh, that's right, your speech. And she sometimes couldn't make the connection. And what I found interesting about that was that when she went back for her neurological testing with her neuropsychologist back last summer, they diagnosed her with early onset dementia. And I had to take pause on that because I was thinking about the nature of her stroke, how large it was, how much language she had lost, but how much she had regained through therapy and her ability to perform on the tests that they were giving her. Was that accurate? Was that an accurate reflection? Was not an accurate diagnosis? Because to me, she had receptive and expressive language deficits when she came to me that got better. Um, she was able to get on the there's a um exercise on the therapy app where you you start out with like three words or four words and a picture and they read you or auditorily provide you the um sentence so say it's cat big the that's the order of the words but it's the big cat so you start out with phrases and you're able to build on the sentences and so she was able to get to the point where she could do five word, sometimes six word sentences. Now, of course, the longer we went, once we got to about five, um, so we had done five sentences, once we got to about five, you could tell that the ability to process the language would break down, which makes sense, right? You know that fatigue, you know that that repetition can sometimes be a barrier. So, if she's able to get the first four or five, then we either take a break and try again, or we would move on and um, take a break and do something different so that we didn't have her having less success than more success because it was a um that was a barrier for her. Because sometimes she was aware of her errors and sometimes she wasn't. Even with her conversational language, sometimes she would say something incorrectly and she'd go, no, 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 no. And then she'd try again and she would say the same exact thing and know that it was not correct, know that it was not the thing that she wanted to say. And she would do that cycle. And then finally she would just give up and go, well, okay. (laughs) Let's say, are you ready to move on? And she'd say, yep. And then she kind of laugh about it. So her her awareness was inconsistent. Um, We would have times like that where she would be aware and not be able to get it out and know that she needed to move on and then other times like when I'm kind of joking with her about her you know favorite speech therapist and she had the inability to process that um even after all that therapy one of the other things we did was because she loved being outside and she loved gardening I um also love gardening and so I took a seed catalog in that was um had some rare plants and some interesting history. I know it sounds kind of nerdy, but I mean, I like knowing where things come from. And so some of these, uh, one of them is uh, Seed Savers, and they are an organization that's been around for a number of years. And she was very interested to know that this tomato came from Poland and was, had history back to the 1800s. She was all in it. So we use those short little um, snippets sometimes as a reading comprehension Task. It was not always very successful. Comprehension was one thing that was a little more impaired than I initially thought it was. And I think, again, that could be the piece that looked like maybe an early onset dementia because she didn't always understand more complex linguistic or linguistically complex utterances or questions. She wasn't always able to process all that. So if you could simplify it, she sometimes could get the answer and get uh, a more simplified answer um, that still communicated her message. But I spent a lot of time with her on stroke education and um, I did that with her family at the beginning too, because no one had ever really fully explained aphasia to them. They really thought it was more cognitive. They didn't think she was all there was what they would say. She's not really all there anymore. And she would just be sitting there looking at them like, daggers shooting out of her eyes because she was so angry and I you know understandably so if you have that language and you just can't access it and someone just assumes that you don't have the intellectual ability to do so has got to be incredibly frustrating so we were able to again tailor some therapy tasks but one of the other things we did was go into when she was seeing PT we went to one of her PTs and kind of helped facilitate uh, communication partner training in a conversation with them. Because what was happening was when she'd go to PT, they're in a gym, it's noisy. There's a bunch of them over there. They're all very young, a lot of new grads. They had never had to um, communicate with someone with aphasia, nor did they know how to. And so a lot of times what would happen is they didn't communicate. They would just do things in silence. They didn't explain what they were doing with her leg. Um, they didn't really offer her options or tell her um, what they were going to work on next, and so that was very frustrating for her. She'd come back sometimes if she'd had PT first, and she could just sit there, and you could see her shoulders drop and her um, her facial expression, and I'd, I would just think she was tired. And we again we delved into it. Are you are you okay? No. Well, how are you feeling? And and one day she came in, she said, I'm pissed. And <laughs> I'm like, Oh, okay, that's a new word I haven't heard you use. But she was upset because she felt like they weren't talking to her because they knew she couldn't talk. And that was that was huge. Um, we use that as a tool then to say, hey, she can talk. Let's let's see if we can get a conversation going. Ask her what she did this weekend. Ask her what her favorite color is. You know, engage her as a human being. And again, I think we mostly think that we should know how to do that. We should inherently or instinctually do that. But sometimes there's a fear, right? Especially think about when you were a new grad and maybe you didn't know how to help assist with the transfer of a patient or you didn't know how to brush someone else's teeth and use suction to clean their mouth. Things that we didn't know how to do. Maybe you didn't know how to um, suction the outer part of a trach. Uh, all kinds of things, right? There's so much stuff that we have to know in the medical um, SLP world that we didn't know how to do either. And if we hadn't had someone show us or mentor us or been, um, we as humans be brave enough to ask, because you don't ever, you know, you don't want to think, have someone think that you don't know what you're doing. But sometimes you don't know what you're doing. So how do you get help? You ask. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think we are depending on your personality anyway, I don't think you're inherently um, set up for that because you're like, oh gosh, I have to know all these things and stuff. And I'm, I'm the subject matter expert and I don't know how to do X, Y, Z, then it can be challenging. And that's where you as a um, an SLP can mentor other disciplines too. You can engage them. You can teach them how to therapeutically connect and communicate with our patients with aphasia because it's important. So just a little comparison of both of these cases. Of course, they both had aphasia, but what they did, what they did not have was the same type of aphasia. So the gentleman, even though he endorsed reading comprehension um, deficits when we did other tasks like spelling from dictation or writing sentences from dictation, um, just a wide variety of, of things that we worked on. Um, he even got to the point where he could, he could actually do like two, three sentences from dictation. And then I would run out of words unless I was reading a paragraph, he could do all of those things. Um, so his auditory comprehension was actually really good. Um, her auditory comprehension, not so much. Um, she could write her name. See again, her, her ability to write her address mirrored her ability to verbally state her address. Sometimes it was, the numbers were off. Sometimes the spelling was wrong of where she lived. Sometimes she would leave um, the city out or the state out. So there was always inconsistencies that were hard to get past um, with her. And again, she was left-hand dominant, so she could still write, um, but it was just, so interesting. Cause I had the, the first episode of Kara I had them at the same time and they just were so very different. Um, you know, he could walk, he could work out, he could run. She couldn't do any of that. It was difficult for her to even get her shirt on. Um, she had a hard time. She could brush her hair, but only on the one side, it was hard for her to cross midline, um, with her left hand to go on the other side to, to comb her hair. um, she couldn't shampoo her hair independently, you know, showering, things like that, that we really don't, you know, we do them every day, you know, we kind of take it for granted, but when it's difficult for someone with a language impairment, they also have the physical impairment component, that's even more of a challenge, Um, and she would try, so, you know, she didn't give up, she really would put in a good effort, but Depression wise, I didn't see signs and symptoms as much with her as I did with him, which was interesting, too, because she was language impaired and physically impaired much more than um, than he was. But everyone is different. And in a, your brain and the response that your brain has to the stroke impacts people in different ways. Of course, personality impacts people in different ways. Um, but it was, again, just so incredibly interesting to see. The task that I could give him on the iPad that I thought might be a challenge for him, like we could do a 10 word sentence construction with sabotage. So I could add words that weren't used in the sentence for the same task. And we got up to the highest level and he got them all right, like day two of even trying this. So there was, you know, there was not a task we were going to spend time on. I just wanted to make sure he was able to do it. And he was. Um, He could do categorization like i mentioned earlier he could do the that on a like an abstract category and he could he could name five things you know we i never put the goal to 10 because i didn't see how that was helpful for him and he got bored um you know again 40 he was 41 at the time active um wanted to be out doing things he actually wanted to volunteer in the community and i encouraged him to do that um you know it was something that was important to him he was hoping it would be a a way he could get back into not only socialization, but feeling valued, giving back to his community. Um, He went to a training program for his church and they actually put him on a waiting list to try to match him with tasks that they needed and they never got back to him. And that was really discouraging for him. Um, The lady had no interest in any of that kind of stuff. What she really wanted to do was go out and go shopping. She wanted to go shopping. That was like her thing. She wanted to go to TJ Maxx. She wanted to be able to go buy a purse. She wanted to get some clothes. Um, You know, her favorite color is purple. So she wanted everything in purple. She wanted to go out to a restaurant and be able to eat. Oh, and that was a piece I didn't mention. Um, Neither one of them had Dysphagia, so that was helpful for them in their care because they didn't have um, any type of concern for aspiration pneumonia, no concern for aspiration in general. Just um, able to eat and drink and take their medications appropriately without any um, assistance once they were able to feed themselves again. So that was that was a um, interesting piece for both of them, and, and again, we see that sometimes our patients with apraxia may have some swallowing challenges at first that sometimes will quickly resolve, but neither one of them were candidates for any kind of alternate feeding conduit or anything like that, so that was notable. Again, um, you know, on the surface, I think sometimes medical professionals see the word aphasia and they just assume that it's a one-size-fits-all, and we know that it's definitely not. We, um, You know, really, again, delved into the counseling and education piece for both of them, because I felt like sometimes they just needed to come in and just say what was on their mind. Because if we didn't get past that and didn't get that out and in the air and out in the world, they weren't able to complete their therapy task, or they would. So say like with the lady, we would do a warm up of naming. So just picture naming because it was something she was Pretty good at had some success with, and she liked it as the warm up. That's what she called it, the warm up. Um, so we would do that, and the pictures randomized, so they're not always the same. And you can pick different categories, like you can pick animals, you can pick food, you can pick clothes, you can even pick all three of those, so that the randoms, um, the randomized pictures are um, different each time. Um, so she loved doing that at the beginning. So that was kind of where we always started. And there was times when she came in, if she was upset, she couldn't do it. Um, You know, we're talking like dog, um, shirt, um, glass of tea, something like that. She couldn't do it at the beginning if she was in a, she called it her funk. (laughs) If she was in her funk that day, she couldn't do it. Um, And it was just... Something that I feel like was important to be, for them, again, to have that safe space that they could be cathartic, get out whatever was on their mind. We could kind of talk through some strategies from a communication standpoint on how to move past it or maybe mitigate it and then um, kind of give them a, a minute to drink some water or have a snack or whatever and then move on. And then typically they were able to re-engage in therapy and complete some tasks that were helpful. But again, having that safe space, seeing some success with a task that may have been seen or may have seemed simple to the the um, outside source or whatever, the person who was on the outside, you got to have some success, right? If you have ever been um, someone who works out or an athlete, if you don't have success and you're constantly pushing yourself and you're not seeing results, you're not seeing yourself get better, are you motivated to keep going? Probably not. And that comes back to that buy-in that I talked about before when you're looking at the life participation approach for aphasia. The patients have to have some ownership and some say in what the goals are and what they want out of the therapy. Um, And I think, again, for me, that's so important and so huge because I saw that within my own family. Um, And that was way before those, those, um, that terminology came about. So stroke and aphasia education, again, I feel like both of these are things that should be done at the beginning. Um, you give your patient the diet, the speech diagnosis, you give them the, the medical term. You say this is the medical term for aphasia is a loss of language or a lack of access to language, but you're not, um, unintelligent you didn't lose your intellect you lost the ability to access your language or to initiate what you want to say um there's a lot of different ways to explain it but i think again that is a great starting point so even if you're in the acute care world and you're in ICU and you've got a patient with aphasia you go in and you don't talk to them because you know they maybe can't respond that's to me is just such a disservice because you should be talking this patient through what is happening. This is what it's called. This is what I can try to do to help you. Maybe you can't tell me right now what you want, um, but we'll get to that when your language gets better. Just having that starting piece, I think is so important. Um, There are some really good resources out there and some really great references too. There's a lot of research still being done with aphasia. Um, a lot of the things that I listed and for this re, uh, reference page are recent articles, 2023, 2022, um, understanding user na- needs for digital aphasia therapy. That is a study that came out in 2023 in um, aphasiology. There's an umbrella review of aphasia intervention descriptions and research, the Aspire project that's also in aphasiology that came out in 2022 as well. And then a scoping review of the application of AI to aphasia, because that's, you know, a space that we're moving into um, is using AI, but also the, um, the therapy apps to me have been super successful for the patients that I've used them with. And I feel like, If they have the financial means and they can have that at home for home practice, that's even better because it's reinforcing, but it gives them again that ownership of having that practice space and that practice time. So I just want to say thank you for listening to this and um, knowing that aphasia is so important to me and we do such great work with this population. And so um, I just really appreciate your support and really hope that you gain some knowledge out of this. And if you ever have any questions about aphasia or want to give feedback, I would love to hear it. So thank you so much for joining us and hope to see you again. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.